When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can the Sixers figure out their spacing issues? Did Eric Spolstra just unlock the secrets to his team? Why is the middle of the Eastern Conference so confusing? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, as always, I'm joined by Jared Weiss of The Athletic. He covers the Celtics and the NBA for them and is going to talk about the NBA for with, with us tonight. So, Jared, how's it going tonight? Always going well, especially after Christmas where I can barely keep my eyes open. Yes, we're, I'm doing Chinese food tonight, the day after. I'm a little, I'm really in a kind of class here. See, I did it the night before. I try to get it out of the way before the rush starts. But you yeah. know what? I went to Chinatown in downtown Boston on Christmas Eve. It was crazy out there. People you know, running through the streets. Every other part of the city was dead, but Chinatown was popping. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We had, you know, don't try and find Chinese food on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day in L.A. because it was just there was nothing. Either they weren't open or it, they were packed. It was crazy. So we're going to get it on tonight. And we also need to talk a little bit about uh, Philly playing Boston yesterday on Christmas Day, or just sort of Philly in general. You had a great little piece uh, on The Athletic about the spacing with Embiid and his feelings in the offense and how Brett Brown is running it. So what was your take generally on what's going on with the Sixers offense, particularly down the stretch of close games? I love that we're basically turning into a Sixers pod. This This is, I think, my dream come true here, basically. But, you know, before the game, I was talking to Brett Brown and he he made this point about how they were kind of figure, kind of like still figuring out who they are, which is something you know you expect after a month after the Jimmy Butler trade. And you know after the game, he said that they basically came away from, or maybe he said it before the game, he came away from the series that they where they lost in five to the Celtics, and they kind of decided to recalibrate their team based on how that series went based on how they match up with Boston. You know, just like how Boston kind of has been calibrating themselves to match up with the Warriors, although it looks like they need to match up with Milwaukee and Toronto and Philly if they really want to get there anyway. But, you know, Philly has been looking at Boston as that that road that they have to go down if they want to get to the finals, something that Brown has said multiple times. And so I think what we saw at the end of that game, especially in overtime, is a lot more indicative of what we're going to see in the playoffs And frankly, I think we saw more of the same of what happened in the playoffs last year, where Ben Simmons' Simmons inability to space the floor just creates so so much tangled webbing in the half-court offense for Philly. And Philly, when they're on the move, are unstoppable. And they almost won that game. I mean, J.J. Redick rimmed out a pretty good look. Although Gordon Hayward was all over him. But it was like a pretty decent look for one of the best shooters of all time. If people could see this, you'd see Nick making a face like he's pooping himself a little bit. But whatever. The point is he got the shot off. They could have It could have gone down. The narrative is completely different. But really what I took away from that game was that 
One, they're in much better shape now because they have Jimmy Butler. And Butler, even when the offense is sucking, he can go get those buckets, and that's what makes him great. But unless they're in transition in the fourth quarter, they really struggle to score. And we touched on this last week when we were talking about how Embiid just struggles so much in the fourth quarter. And in this game, he only had two points in the final 15 minutes of playing time where Al Horford was guarding him the entire time. Al Horford matches up against him better than anybody else in the league. And uh, Horford was huge in this game. But, you know, Joel didn't get a ton of touches in the post like they were feeding him for, for the first three quarters. And he seemed kind of annoyed about it after the game and made some comments about you had to ask coach about why I didn't get my touches. And I felt like I should have got more touches. You know, but the thing is, the Celtics guard knowing that you're trying to feed him into the post. And we saw Horford was denying like crazy. They do a soft double to try to deny. And so it puts so much pressure on Simmons. And we were talking about this before we went on air is that. Ben Simmons is basically hiding in the dunker spot on the weak side baseline when they're running their crunch time offense and they can't score with him there because it takes so much pressure off of the defense to stay spread out, to worry about scrambling to the weak side. I mean, it just Simmons takes away so many problems that defenses usually have to solve late in games. Right. A lot to unpack here. Uh, I was, as I'm patiently waiting to get in, uh, the face I was making was the Patton Oswald uh, gif of him going, eh. So that's in case you want to picture that in your brain. Um, the J.J. Reddick shot, I felt like uh, the, the offense had bogged down. They missed a couple opportunities to actually attack when they should have, and that left J.J. to be dribbling the ball, which I think is a mistake every time, and then shooting that shot. Now, the interesting thing about Embiid as being a center is that you have to rely on multiple people to get you the ball at any time in the game, and particularly in the fourth quarter. And what we see Horford doing really well is he, he makes him catch the ball way out on the perimeter. Even though he wants to be in the block, he ends up catching it at 10 or 12 feet away. There's a little bit more pressure on the passer, which is what they probably ramp up throughout the game to make it feel like, oh, I can always feed him when I want to. But then all of a sudden in the fourth quarter, they're up a little bit tighter. It makes it a little bit harder. they got to turn a little bit more to protect the ball before they pass it. So all of a sudden those touches begin to evaporate a little bit without any other adjustment that the, the, the offense does not simply have to get him the ball down there. So that's a real problem that they need to solve because, again, yeah, if you're going to play Simmons in there with him, uh, he, the dunker spot, in case we don't know, is sort of the uh, along the baseline, almost like almost behind the backboard, kind of, but along the baseline, about eight or ten feet away from the hoop. Um, well, or maybe four feet out of the lane. So what is that now? Twelve feet. So anyway, the point being that his man can now come up the works and be in the lane and sort of be close enough to guard Simmons, but also you know stop any cutters. And when we saw is when. Um, Embiid turns into the lane to like drive and like maybe look for a kick out from there. All of a sudden, he's going into a wall of teammates where there's just no spacing because they're all on the weak side trying to space out. But with Simmons there, too, just makes it a mess. So they need to solve some problems uh, with that without question. They have a lot of time to do it, but we better start seeing something now so they can work on it by the time they get to the playoffs. Yeah, there was this one possession that really interested me that kind of illustrated that problem was that forget exactly which one it was. It was late in the game. I think it was the one where Butler missed that contested fadeaway against Tatum. But so they ran high pick and roll with him and Embiid. The, um, the Celtics are in drop coverage when they're doing that. So Horford's sinking in. Uh, or Horford is actually doing an aggressive drop. So they're like almost trapping, but he's sitting 
a little bit below the screen. So when you do that, that means another defender has to roll into the or, you know crash into the lane to pick up Embiid on the roll. So Embiid doesn't get a free roll, and then you pass over the top. Now, most of the time, that that defender is guarding someone in the weak side corner. And so basically your risk there is that they're able to skip past it to the corner or throw to the roll man who then throws it to the corner and you get a wide open shot. But the numbers game works in the defense's favor because Simmons, instead of being out there in the corner, is sitting in that dunker spot. So Marcus Morris, I think, was on Simmons at the time. He literally just took one step over towards the lane where Embiid was going to roll and Embiid just stopped rolling. And then he just took another step back towards Simmons and the, the defense reset and all of a sudden the play was dead. And I think Butler ended up just going into isolation and missed a shot over Tatum in crunch time. And so that was a really good illustration of how just the math game gets completely screwed up for the offense when you have Simmons down there because he's really in a position where he can't really do much offensively because he's on the he's on the strong side of the ball. So even if you're dumping it down to him in the dunker spot, he has a contested post up against the baseline where he's basically trapped against the baseline. There's not really much for him to do. And he's basically just standing in the way of the four man offense at that point. And so it kind of begs the question of why isn't he operating out of the high post out on the elbows a little bit more in these sets? Is it you probably would know this better than I just because of your coaching experience. Can you run high pick and roll with another guy kind of standing there on the near elbow? Uh, well, you get into like that Spain pick and roll where you have him actually yeah. doing something like like uh, setting a back screen somewhere. But otherwise, you know, he's in the way uh, he, or he can't be in the way. So I think what they what they would be better off doing and they do it is is all that pistol action where they can set a, a pin down for uh, for um, Simmons and then do a handoff to him. So he's getting like almost a double screen in a row. He's catching the ball on the run and he can turn downhill and get going. It's what they do with Giannis all the time for another non shooter. And uh, the only problem we have with that kind of action is that it kind of disappears in the fourth quarter of crunch time. A lot of games, for whatever reason, you know, players just get a little bit tighter. They want to sort of isolate more. They want to eliminate action when, in fact, they need for a guy like that a lot more of that kind of stuff. Maybe pinch post action where they throw the ball to Simmons at the elbow and then they cut off of him. You follow your pass to cut off. He could fake it to you, a turn, do all that kind of stuff. Once they get him moving like that and making uh, catches on the run for him, he should become as effective as he can possibly be. But the second you bury him in the corner or on the dunker spot uh, on the weak side, you know, his man is going to be able to do a lot of damage to the offense is gumming up all the works uh, and no amount of shooters will help that spacing. And we're going to be in the same spot we were last year in the playoffs with these guys. And it was the same result in five games. And the funny thing is it goes back to what we were saying with Embiid, where Embiid wasn't in position a lot of the time to score on the block because he was spacing the floor so much in those late game situations where they were using him in pick and pop. Uh, I think he was spacing to the corner on a few of those plays. So he wasn't really in shooting position most of the time. And Joe doesn't really shoot from the corner very often. It's not really his shot. Um, it, you know, to his credit, he actually shot pretty well from three in this game. He, I think it was Tim Bontemps of ESPN had an article where Embiid about a week or so ago was saying, I'm done shooting from the outside. I just want to take it in the post. And then, of course, the last few games, he's been shooting it pretty well from the outside. So <laughs> I guess opposite day is working pretty well for him. Whatever he's doing, keep going because he's playing really well. But, um, you know, I, I still think the fatigue is a factor. And that's what we talked about on last week's pod. But the way that I mean, Embiid is kind of forced to operate in areas that he's not completely comfortable. 
and he has the talent to still be able to pull it off. He's he has the talent that he's the kind of guy that can catch the ball on like a short roll and he can put it on the floor and make something happen. But with Simmons down there, you're basically he's basically dribbling into a trap. And I think if Simmons wasn't in the way, they could still do a lot of the short roll stuff that he's trying to do or attacking closeouts and stuff like that. But he and Simmons still need to figure out a way that they can really play off of each other. Um, you know, as far as like pistol stuff, I think with about two minutes left or so where Philly was still up, um, they ran one of those plays where Butler, I think, was coming down in transition and he and Simmons worked kind of some give and go action out in the uh, pinch post area. So, you know, that works and they're great when they're in transition. But right now, Simmons is still trying to figure out how to be useful in the half court and crunch time. And until they figure that out, their ceiling stays lower than the other three teams at the top, or I guess four teams at the top of the East. Well, let's move on to talking about the Miami Heat because they're all of a sudden an interesting team that I don't even I don't even recognize them. I'm watching them tonight and they're just hammering the Raptors uh, through the first two and a half quarters. And it's been a, a revelation to see without Dragic, they didn't really have a point guard. I had seen them uh, in L.A. a few weeks ago and the offense, you know, worked OK. But all of a sudden, Justice Winslow is playing point guard for them. And he a, looks like a different player to me. He looks like sort of slimmed down and more of like a guard than he did before. He was kind of bigger maybe in years past. But he also is bringing the ball up and scanning the floor so well uh, as a as a almost a traditional point guard. He almost looks just like that at a, in a, at a bigger frame. And um, I, I think that Eric Spolster might have stumbled upon something here. Uh, count on Spo. Once they get past game 30 of the season, Miami's always like a top 10 team. It's incredible. He always figures it out with these guys. And, you know, Dragic is out with knee surgery. He's going to be out for a couple months. And they don't have a backup point guard, really, to put in there. And what's so exciting about it is that they're kind of playing one of those lineups of the future that we've been seeing where it's four wings out there with a big. And it's really fascinating because I didn't think Winslow, I was really, when I heard that they were doing this with Winslow, I was like, Justice Winslow, of all people, I figured Josh Richardson maybe would be the guy to do it. But Winslow is he's a good fit for it because he kind of runs point in a similar way to Simmons, actually. Uh, he's not nearly the passer and not quite the ball handler that Simmons is. But he, in a lot of ways, build-wise, ability to finish, pretty similar. And he actually, not only is he a pretty solid pull-up guy from mid-range, but lately he has been absolutely on fire shooting from three. He's been shooting over 40 percent uh, from three for a while now both on spot up and even some pull-up shots but what i really like about what he's doing is he's a very very patient attacker he's using his body to protect the ball very well he's not trying to attack the lane too hard he's trying they're you know they're kind of working different angles on their pick and rolls or doing some rescreening stuff and he's just kind of kind of you know moraying his way into the paint and eventually he's getting good dribble penetration and making the right pass and he's not doing anything really spectacular, but he's doing just enough that the offense keeps flowing. And then when they have Richardson, Tyler Johnson out there, um, uh, who am I forgetting? Johnson, who can move the ball as well. And then, of course, Olenek, their offense flows so nicely. So they're not feeling the loss of Dragic nearly as much. But I'm, I'm sure they're going to start to feel it, feel a, a little bit more when they just need a consistent late game score, which is something I think Dragic has always been pretty good with. And 
they don't have anybody on the roster right now that's healthy that you know can get you like three buckets in a row. Sure. And they've won five in a row. And it, wouldn't you know it, the Raptors have uh, stormed back and uh, tied at 93. Now they're actually down by four again. So the Heat are in pretty good position here at home uh, on national TV to, to beat the Raptors. So we'll see how that works, which would be a huge feather in their cap as a sixth win in a row and, you know, getting them back into the playoff hunt. So uh, it's really impressive what, what they're doing there. Also, with the offense, they also, listen, everybody runs pistol. Everyone runs some version of, you know, pitch it ahead, follow your pass around, and then set an inside ball screen or pin down, dribble handoff, that kind of stuff. So in reality, a lot of the time for their offense, you just need somebody to dribble the ball up across half court and get the, the offense started, which is sort of like what the point guard used to do anyway. That was the thing. And now uh, out of that, they're getting you know a lot of good action with uh, with Tyler Johnson and with Richardson. So that's almost like you know by necessity they needed him, and he can kind of uh, certainly do that. And then all of a sudden, though, we're seeing a little bit more. He's not turning his back while he's handling the ball. He's able to keep square to the basket and see the floor uh, and, and make the, the good pass he needs to make. Uh, and then all of a sudden, if you play him in that position, you have a, a really good switchy athletic unit. You can units you can throw out there from Spolster that make it really difficult. So um, I, I'm kind of I'm really really intrigued by this Heat team. I don't know how, what that means, but I'm intrigued. Uh, what does it mean, Jared? I mean, they've got to be a playoff team, and of course, as we're saying this, the Raptors are quickly storming back, which is why they're the Raptors. And I think by the time we finish this segment, we'll have a final score here. But. Um, well, I mean, Miami is just so deep. They have nine good rotation players, depending on your thoughts on Dwayne Wade right now. But, uh, you know, they bring in a second unit where they have Richardson out there to carry on the first unit. And then it's it's Wade for some creativity. Johnson and Adebayo, who are you know kind of two of the best hard-nosed hustle players at the at, you know, interior and perimeter, and then Olenek, who's kind of like that really good glue guy that can shoot from anywhere. So they, they're able to have so much balance in their lineups throughout the game that they don't really, they usually don't have many drop-off points, and that's what makes them so interesting and so unique, and of course why they're going to lose in the first round if they do make the playoffs, besides the fact that their jerseys are probably the best jerseys in NBA history. I'll go on a limb with that one. But, uh, you know, this team, if, if Winslow stays hot, one, he's kind of a borderline all-star if that happens. But two, with the way that Richardson has grown and the fact that Whiteside seems to be pretty engaged right now, it seems like they've kind of turned a corner. And it's not about that Drogic is out and they're better off without Drogic. I think it's just more so that guys that were kind of zeros earlier in the year are starting to really turn into heroes for them. Absolutely. And I've always liked this team. I've always been a little bit concerned about like why they couldn't put it together in the years past. And they've all had all sorts of issues like with, with Whiteside. And um, I will say this. One thing that was struck me about watching them play uh, in this game tonight was like they were smiling. They looked like they were having fun. I mean, at that point, they were hammering them. So I, can, I get it. Uh, and now it's a tie game with a minute 19 to go. But either way, there seems to be a different um, energy going on there, which usually leads to good stuff. And all of a sudden you have guys you know, playing above themselves when you wouldn't have normally done. And certainly, you know, that's something that Spolster should, could be able, would be able to do. So uh, I'm really intrigued. The Easter Conference is a very strange beast this year, right? It's sort of like um, it's probably almost as confusing as the Western Conference. And you have a lot of teams that are going to be bunched up there uh, as it is now. I mean, between let's say the Celtics are, well, we won't count them, but between Charlotte and like, you know, um, the Magic, 
You got a bunch of, they got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. You got five teams all bunched up within a couple games of each other. Um, and that's going to be an interesting race for that last, uh, for, the, for the bottom sixth through eighth playoff spots in the East. Which is funny because Charlotte's net rating is so much better than what their actual record is. Miami, I feel like, has always been be- kind of underachieving, rel- or I guess overachieving relative to their record. Their net rating, I think, has always been high for a team with that kind of a record. And then Orlando, I don't know how they have all these wins, but they seem to... I feel like they still went against Boston earlier this year, but they've stolen a lot of surprise wins. But, uh, I mean, Miami is coming into their stride. I'm pretty confident that they're going to be the one that comes through here. Uh, They're just such a complete team, which is something that Charlotte doesn't have. I mean, Charlotte was really riding Kemba Walker being scorching hot so far this year. Orlando, I mean, you know, the Orlando kind of seems like a poor man's Miami, or they have been for a while, which I, I'm talking as much about the city as I am about the team itself. But, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> I mean, Miami is they have a nice offensive system where they somehow manage to have spacing, even though they probably shouldn't, mostly because they're just they're in small lineups most of the time. Um, and they've drafted so well that every single year they keep adding like two good rotation players. That's what's so remarkable about it. I mean, look at how how good Autobio is for them now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and he's a revelation as well. I love the way I love It's funny. They have a, probably more players that I kind of love the way they play than anybody else. I mean, James Johnson was always a favorite of mine, even back in the Bulls days in 2011 or whatever that was. Uh, and a guy who's just never been able to quite put it all together. And, you know, you see these, these images or these, these um, brief glimpses into like some really terrific stuff. And, um, you know, and then and then he then he'll fall off again, and we'll get playing time and this and that, whatever. As Wade hits a, I believe he hit a three to go up by one now with a minute to go uh, with this game. So, um, two thousand six all over again. Yeah, exactly. So we'll oh, and then there goes Kawhi hitting another bucket to go up by one. So this is a back and forth game. Maybe worth even a breakdown if uh, if I'm so crazy enough to do next uh, tomorrow. So. But at any rate, uh, so keep your eye on Miami, everybody, because, again, they can cause some problems, and Dwayne Wade is one of the closers that can still do it a little bit every once in a while. It's pretty impressive. In L.A., I saw him have a, you know, a throwback first half, and, uh, and then there's Justice Winslow taking the ball off his pick and roll and scoring it right at the basket with a right hand, which is a, a rarity for him. So uh, anyway, well, let's, uh, this is great stuff. Keep your eye on all that well, hold on, on hold what we on, just talked on. about. I'm not- I'm not letting this get out of here without a question. By the way, I want to keep this going until this game is over because right. it's pretty rare to get to do live play-by-play on a podcast. And right. I'm sure well, okay. Well, now you know there's going to be a timeout, but uh, freaking Danny Green just uh, nailed another three to go up by two. Uh, let's see here. I'll tell you what this was. There's a pick and roll, um, and then a uh, they hit surge on the short roll, and then they left Danny Green wide open. In fact, it's sort of what – guess who did it? it? was James Johnson lost his man, got lost on that bump. And, uh, so and gave Danny Green a wide open three to give him up by uh, by two. So that's a and tough you know one. that that play illustrates the theory issue that we were talking about with the Sixers is that the Sixers don't have those two those two shooters in the corner where you can pick out whichever one has the help sink in from to hit it. And look at how easy it is for the Raptors to get crunch time buckets. But why isn't Korkmaz and and Redick those two players they need? Well, I think Shamit would be the guy just because yeah. he's been more reliable. Korkmaz, okay. um, it's funny. I was waiting to tweet what a fork and shot the entire game, and it didn't. He didn't actually hit one until like the fourth quarter. But he and I like him. And maybe he'll be good in a couple of years. But right now, Shamit seems to be a more reliable shooter. And it's it's insane to take off Ben Simmons, an All Star player who is you know getting pretty close to being a superstar, but. I mean, there's just going to be some defensive matchups where they have to do it. But so to all right to keep this heat segment going, 
when they cut down to eight and a half men in the rotation for the playoffs, if they make the playoffs, who would, what would be your rotation? Wait, are we talking about Miami? Miami. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a great question. Well, um, obviously, you know, here's the question. Does that mean Dragic is healthy and playing or not? Let's assume Dragic is healthy. Okay. So he's starting, right? Because he's just yes, going to be the guy yes. starting. And uh, let's see here. Uh, other than that, we have the other, the other starters who are going to be uh, Josh Richardson uh, alongside him. And then uh, Winslow would be your point forward then, which would be interesting because he's got a lot of uh, experience now. He will by then have a lot of experience actually running the show in that almost that Scotty Pippen role. So then you have Hassan Whiteside playing, uh, Dwayne Wade coming off the bench. Uh, I, I, and let's see, did I get the whole all the starters there? Um, I well, guess so, you have a decision between like Tyler Johnson, Rodney Magruder. It looks like Magruder is the guy who's been starting. So then you'd be you have J- Tyler Johnson, Dwayne Wade, and uh, you know Bam Adebayo coming off the bench, and then Olenek could be like the, uh, the the ninth guy, right? Yeah. Well, so but Johnson's been starting, and Magruder has started the entire year. So I guess it. I'm just thinking. It, it, well, Dragic will take one of those spots, right? Yeah. So. Oh, wow. Dwayne Wade misses the reverse putback and the uh, Raptors pull it off. That was a hell of a game there. But so, the, you know, they, they love Magruder. They love having him in the starting lineup. So it makes me think, I wonder if Winslow will go back to the bench in that core rotation, even though, I mean, I think he's playing too well that you just, you want him to play 38 minutes in the playoffs. So you just don't want him coming off the bench unless they're going to have him come off the bench and then pretty much play the entire game without resting really. But they love the balance that they get out of Magruder. I'm guessing they're probably just going to have to stop doing that at that point because Winslow has to be in the starting lineup then. Right. And I didn't mention James Johnson either, who you know will, will get a lot of minutes because he's got a lot of experience. So it's a real – I think the point of that this question is Spolter is going to have his hands full trying to juggle what's the best lineups, and he might end up just doing it game by game or you know letting the full season's um, advanced analytics and lineup data tell him, okay, well, these are the lineups that are, are playing better. We need to go with them. But uh, And then you know it might be a completely matchup-related uh, thing every time. And this is a comment – probably a, a terrible shot by Dwayne Wade as he took a step-back three with, with Danny Green literally in his shorts – uh, where there was plenty of time left. They were only down by two. And then, yeah, uh, they have a, another desperation three. They get shot, and Wade had a tip that he really could have just, you know, in a reverse manner, just put the ball in for the tie. But, uh, you know, it shows you that even even veterans who have a lot of experience can make, you know, mistakes down the stretch or at the last second of a game. Don't tell Dwayne that's a mistake. He's never made a mistake in his career on a last-second shot. Okay. Well, I won't tell him then. Uh, <laughs> I'd be facetious. He takes horrible shots to close out games. Probably, I think Wade. I mean, Wade is one of probably one of my favorite players ever. But I think his ability to or his frequency of like really bad decision making on closing shots is severely underrated. He's taken a lot of yeah. just like terrible contested shots, but he feels that it's in his spot in his rhythm. But he just doesn't get the separation. I feel like that's been happening for like six years now. Right. Probably. Well, you're, you know, the, the ghost of somebody else is wafting around what we're talking about it too. And what is, who his inspiration was for, I'm sure all the shots that he's, you're describing. So we, we don't even have to name him, but we know he's out there somewhere listening and doing details of other games. So, but Shout Jared, Alex English. <laughs> him too. So uh, great stuff. Keep your eye on all those things we talked about so far, and we will get back to you. Actually, in a couple days, really quickly, we'll be back with you on the 29th for another pod with another update. So get back to us on Twitter. Let us know what you think and any questions you might have, and we will answer them for you in the next one and go from there. So thanks for joining me, Jared. Thank you all out there for joining us. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You win. 
Are you in, Jared? I'll be in in a couple days. 